Good afternoon from Singapore and welcome to lecture three of the Middle East Institute's annual ME101 series. My name is Clemens Che and I'm a research fellow at MEI. And today's lecture topic covers China's involvement and role in the Middle East, all with the encompassed theme of competition. So on competition, let me say a few words before I hand over to my colleague and the speaker for today, Dr. Alessandro Arduino, who will be covering this lecture. On competition, we specifically refer you know, to the US-China competition that has been heating up, not only making the headlines, but also dominating scholarly debates. The latest news announced just yesterday about a defense deal between the US and Australia, and with the support of Britain, was to counter China's territorial claims in the Pacific. On September 24th, next week, President Biden will be hosting an in-person meeting at the White House with leaders of the Quad Alliance, namely Australia, India, and Japan. Singapore, of course, earlier this week hosted Chinese State Councillor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi, where our Prime Minister reaffirmed that they had a productive and candid discussion on international and regional developments. If you're interested to know more about PM's thoughts on the US-China competition, you can also go to the PM office website to have a look at his transcript at the Aspen Security Forum where he delivered also an interview with, with one of the journalists over there. So of course, the Chinese foreign minister's visit to Singapore comes after US Vice President Kamala Harris's visit to Singapore last month. And analysts have said that Mr. Wang's visit and visits really along with his delegation are intended to hedge or limit the influence of US senior officials previous visits, but it also shows that China's proposals and practices on multilateralism are more appealing than the US's small click approach of containment. So today we welcome my colleague, Dr. Alessandro Arduino to talk about China and the Middle East, a specific region and, and China's role there, the dragon and the Middle East, and by extension, the geopolitical competition between the US and China in the region and how states in the region have reacted. The Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi again did a week-long trip at the end of March to six countries in the Middle East, culminating in the China-Iran agreement. But also, not only that, but also a decision to make the UAE a regional production hub for vaccines with, in a deal with Chinese pharmaceutical plant Sinopharm. In July as well, Mr. Wang made another Middle East trip hopping from Syria then to Egypt and to Algeria with the intention of upgrading ministerial meetings to a China-Arab summit in, and which will be scheduled in 2022 in Saudi Arabia. So how much further will China go in its other initiatives besides the Belt and Road Initiative that we have often uh, read about or heard about? You know, there are also the digital Silk Roads and the health Silk Road that my colleague will cover. And these are questions that you should be asking our speaker today, Dr. Alessandro Arduino, and I shall give an introduction to his bio today. He is the Principal Research Fellow at the MEI, at MEI and he is also the Co-Director of the Security and Crisis Management International Center at the Shanghai Academy of Social Science, SESS. He's also an associate at the Lao China Institute at King's College London and has two decades of experience in China encompassing security analysts, analysis and crisis management. His main research interests includes China, Central Asia, Middle East and North Africa, sovereign wealth funds, private military and security companies, including on 
mercenaries, and more recently on cryptocurrency. Uh, his most recent book is on China's private army protecting the new Silk Road, and it's published with Palgrave in 2018. So without further ado, before I hand over to my colleague, uh, I would like to invite our audience to really think through what kind of questions you're going to ask our speaker for today, because at the end of his lecture, we'll open it up to the floor for Q&A. So right now, let me hand it over to Dr. Alexandro Arduino. Over to you, Alex. Clemens, thank you very much for your two kind introduction. I say uh, basically you are giving already out the final of my presentation. Uh, saying all the points that are major of interest now looking at China in the Middle East. Uh, having said that, uh, there is a lot of talk. It started several years ago looking at uh, the perception. And perception is very important in international relations. And it was a perception of U.S. leaving the Middle East and if China was ready to jump in and being a, a security provider. It was not the case, it's still not the case now, but then there is a lot of discussion nowadays, uh, as we speak in, if China in other area, and I'm talking uh, about Afghanistan, is going to fill the gap in the competition uh, with the United States. Please now just allow me to share my screen for the presentation. And basically today, uh, what I'm going uh, to talk uh, briefly, because I really like to have uh, a discussion with you, uh, feel free if you have a burning question to ask it through the MEI chat or something is not clear during my presentation uh, to just uh, send your question right now. Uh, basically, I'm going to look uh, at uh, four points. People Republic of China, and I underline People Republic of China in the Middle East. Uh, why that? Because China has a, uh, an empire, has a long history with the Middle East, and especially with other empires, with Iran, for example, with uh, the Persian one. In this respect, trade was at the helm of the relationship, but still now there is a diffuse perception that uh, relation between the Middle East and China is just uh, uh, oil, gas, raw material, natural resources, and a little bit of trade. But um, today I want to underline in the beginning of this presentation how the People's Republic of China still has a long history of relationship with the Middle East and how this history play not only in the perception but in the approach of Beijing throughout the Middle East and uh, on a broader level in a competition with the United States. Second part, uh, I'm not going to talk much about the Belt and Road Initiative, but mostly as a part of it. Uh, as Clemens just mentioned, the Digital Silk Road uh, is a very important part uh, of the US-China com ongoing competition. And in the Middle East, uh, in my personal opinion, is where this competition is going to play, and it's already playing, and it is assuming a very important uh, tactical and strategical role for both countries. Then I'm going to address uh, the role of China security uh, more broader in the MENA region, Middle East and North Africa. And then uh, uh, the latest tour, just uh, uh, at the end of March, uh, that State Consular and Foreign Affairs Minister of China, Wang Yi, uh, did in six countries in the Middle East. And then most important, I'm welcoming all the questions from uh, your side. Having said that, uh, I like to divide China uh, 
evolution in interaction with the Middle East uh, in uh, three segments. The first one, uh, it was just at the beginning, 1941, mostly it was 1955, at the time of the Bandung Conference, and uh, until 1971, uh, it was China deeply involved with uh, ideology. It was a political support in the national struggle that several countries in the Middle East and especially in Northern Africa were having in terms of basically uh, breaking the colonial entanglement that uh, has been locking them. And China was supporting, we have to remember at the time that China has a limited resource to, to spend on this support while Russia had more. But uh, uh, Chinese support uh, in several areas ranged, for example, for the support uh, of the Palestinian cause uh, with the People Liberation Organization and Fatah, especially uh, with the support to Algeria, uh, to the Front Liberation Nationale Algerienne, uh, the FLN, uh, and several other areas. If you can see in the picture here on the left is Chinese support uh, to the Dofari Rebellion. Uh, a less known uh, Marxist uh, uh, group that was trying to overthrow the government in Oman. And you can see in the picture uh, is not a Russian Kalashnikov, is a Chinese one as the bayonet is fixed uh, to the stock. I mean, say that China start to move to a more cautious, and let's say I call it a selective participation to the affair in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, from 79 to 2011, 2012, uh, for several reasons. Mostly, we, we are talking about a period in which we are at the peak of the Cold War. I mean, say that uh, Russia was and China were distancing one from the other, and China also uh, was just out from the Cultural Revolution and was even less resources to, to spend abroad. But then, uh, in uh, beginning of the new millennium, uh, China became an important uh, energy uh, importer. And in this respect, the Middle East come again into the radar. And if you see uh, on the picture on the right side, uh, in 2016, uh, there was a very important white paper published uh, looking at the role of China with uh, the Arab country. Zhongguo, Dwei, Alawo, Boja, and it's not all Middle East, it's just related to the Arab country, but it gives uh, a picture of the role of China. And still now, Chinese academicians are debating uh, what is this role. Most of them still are very adamant to the fact that China is going, not going to get sucked into the Middle East quagmire. Several of these opinions are still shared at the same level if you want to talk about Afghanistan. China is not going uh, to get involved in the so-called cemetery of empires. But having said that, China is moving his selective participation to a more proactive role. And that's why uh, the Middle East, it's a very important part uh, in this competition, geopolitical and geoeconomical competition with the United States. Uh, what is not only? I have a couple of not only today. The first one, yes, energy is a very important part. Uh, here at MEI, we have been hosted several webinars on the role of energy in China. And you can see that the Middle East play a very important role. 
this uh, PowerPoint, uh, the, this uh, chart uh, is still dated 2014. So at the time, Iran was still an important component. Now it has been reduced following President Trump maximum pressure and to the fact that mostly Beijing abided by the sanction and uh, the number lose lost in Iran are coming mostly from Iraq. So roughly we can say China oil imports uh, is more than 40% from the Middle East and also uh, natural gas from Qatar. Uh, it's a very important part for the, the security. But then again, if we look uh, at the Belt and Road Initiative that since 2013 is President Xi Jinping flagship foreign policy initiative, you can see that again, the Middle East play a very important part, not only for sea lane of communication, there are two of the uh, several choke point, most important choke point uh, uh, for the protection of sea lane of communication, but also there are countries uh, that are fundamental to China foreign policy. Uh, if you look uh, at the map and we start left to right, the one in dark green, uh, we have Morocco, Egypt, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, UAE and Iran. These countries all together uh, are a comprehensive strategic partner. What it is, it's the highest level of diplomatic cooperation that China has with one country. But then again, there are other countries who have strategic partnership in the area, and it's quite important. What I want to mention is this is not just the Belt and Road Initiative. It's also the Digital Silk Road, also known as DSR. Digital Silk Road, uh, we cannot consider it uh, just uh, the Belt and Road with 5G. It's a more broad, strategical, and important discussion that we need to look at. Maybe I will talk more during the Q&A to the fact that uh, China is providing underwater fiber optical cable, Beidou satellite communication, big data, cloud server, internet of things, and also what is much requested, but not only in authoritarian state, uh, is facial recognition and closed circuit camera. These all play in the direct confrontation with the United States. It's too early to say if China has the upper end in the Middle East, but it's not just related in a company like ZTE or Huawei being a leading provider or 5G and the next NG technology for communication. You don't have to forget that uh, uh, IMF predicted in uh, 2034 that the Middle East will reach its peak in oil production. Uh, of course, countries like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE, Oman, Bahrain, and Qatar are already trying to force a very sudden U-turn and change on their own economy, looking at digitalization as uh, the main driver. And of course, China is able right now, especially after COVID-19 pandemic impact, to provide high-level technology solution with uh, cheap bank support. On their side, it's more complicated to compete in this field. But if you look, for example, at uh, during the latest day of the Trump presidency, there was uh, at the time uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Mike Pompeo, that was pushing for a net separation between uh, the Middle East uh, ICT, not only in the security sphere, but also in the civilian one from Chinese company. Having said that, uh, you can see from a pure security footprint uh, how uh, the US perception of uh, Russia 
and China in the Middle East play. So it's very straightforward. It's a threat to security and stability. But if we want to look on the other side, how China is looking at its position in the Middle East, uh, China up to now is not going to send uh, in times of crisis uh, the People Liberation Army, uh, nor the PAP, uh, the People Armed Police. Uh, and there is a lot of talk uh, similarly uh, in Kabul, after the fall of Kabul, if China is going to send its own troop uh, to secure the area for the Belt and Road Initiative. Mostly where the country that hosts the Belt and Road Initiative are not able to protect Chinese investment or Chinese personnel, uh, there are several other options for, uh, for Beijing. One is increase uh, the presence of Blue Helmet, peacekeeping mission, in areas where there are also a lot of Chinese investment, especially in Africa, if we look at Sudan, for example. Then uh, we don't have to forget in an area between the Middle East and the Horn of Africa near the Somali coast, an increase in anti-piracy mission. And China played together with other countries, but separate with the international mission, was not under the same command in protecting mostly Chinese vessels against uh, piracy stemming out from Somalia. Then it opened in the Horn of Africa its first military base. There's been a lot of talk about it, the base in Djibouti. And basically, if you've been in Djibouti, you know that it's a very small country full of military base. Camp Le Monnier from the United States, British, Italian, French, even Japanese military base are located there. Then China uh, still is an economic juggernaut, but it's increasing its uh, security footprint uh, with arm transfer and arm sales. Uh, not only small arm, like the one that we saw in the picture before, uh, regarded to the Dofari rebellion, but also with drone and with missile. And then an important part that plays in its own narrative is the counter-terrorist policy. Counter-terrorist policy that are related to the fight against the, what Beijing and inside the Security Cooperation, Shanghai Cooperation Organization is called the three evil of terrorism, separatism and extremism. And then if we want to put it all this factor together, most of the time it's what is called an unwilling security provider. If you look uh, at the Chinese uh, government, or more of, at the Chinese academic discourse, is it China going uh, to have uh, a more proactive security role from the Middle East to Afghanistan? Then the narrative is quite similar. The answer is straightforward. From Chinese academic standpoint uh, is no. If you look uh, at writers like Sun Degan, uh, Shandin Li, uh, still China have uh, to have relations that are rooted in economic development with the Middle East country. Uh, while others quarrel, uh, like Fan Honda, uh, they are looking at uh, China cooperation with other non-Arab countries in the Middle East, namely Iran and Turkey. Having said that, uh, this slide, in my opinion, is, is the core of the presentation and what you can have a take out and I'm going to apply uh, these four key points uh, to the next slide that are going to deal more specific uh, uh, on each country uh, that uh, Minister Wang Yi touched during his uh, tour is basically one. Is the first question more relevant? Uh, is China is going to change or not his principle of non-interference? Again, as mentioned from a Chinese academic point of view is not going to change. 
But there are some discourse that involve not only academician, but also government official to the fact that China need to change the principle in something that is called a selective engagement. It's going to uh, have a relationship with country. And if you look uh, when I mentioned at the 2016 white paper, there is just one sentence in the security part and is quite small paragraph compared to the economic one in which is said that if the hosting country require a military support from China, China is willing to do it. And it's quite important because it's definitely going to change what has been for several decades one of the core principles in Chinese foreign policy. Having said that, uh, Chinese uh, foreign policy and competition even with the United States in the Middle East is still investment centric. Belt and Road Initiative that is still going on after the COVID-19 pandemic hit very hard uh, the Middle East is still there. It's going to be reduced in Africa is the same. But then again, uh, the core of China uh, policy is going to be rooted in investment. And the country in the Middle East know very well that China is uh, uh, a very strong economic juggernaut and have the capability even now uh, after COVID-19 hit to invest in the region, while at the same time is not only an unwilling security provider, but doesn't have uh, the military capability as the United States to provide that sort of security umbrella that the United States was able to provide. Having said that, uh, I think it's quite important uh, if we stress one point. Middle East countries have sometimes very different perception and especially very different expectation on what China is going to offer, not if it's able to offer, but if it's willing to offer. Let me give you some example. For example, Hezbollah uh, several times uh, underlined how China is going to increase uh, its investment in the region. Uh, Assad in, uh, in Syria also was looking at China as one of the most important investors to rebuild the country. And if we look just uh, a few days ago, uh, Mullah Baradar in Afghanistan was underlined how China is going to pour billion of dollars in Afghanistan and uh, developing the, the country and rebuild the country after the war. Then one is the expectation that this country have and one is the fact that most of the time China has a different perception and different willing to invest. So uh, we have uh, a, this kind of different expectation that sometimes doesn't play uh, very well in the on the long-term relation between uh, the country that received the Chinese money and vice versa. So basically all the countries in the Middle East uh, are playing uh, a, a very fast changing and difficult game between uh, the US and China competition. And basically is knowing that China is an economic juggernaut, but still the US security umbrella is extremely important. And if you look at the picture that I put on the, on the right side, on the bottom, is a quantum computer. And then again, on uh, the scientific competition, on the 5G slash quantum computing, AI and big data, in my personal opinion, is where this battle for supremacy is already being fought uh, in the Middle East. And it's not about just uh, a pure security, looking at the number of how many ships, how many tanks, how many missiles one country have uh, against the other. 
And then again, if we use these four key points that I just mentioned, uh, what are in the future that is quite near going to be the macro trends about uh, uh, China policy in, in the Middle East? Definitely maintaining open the sea line of communication uh, for energy security mostly. But then uh, the expansion of the Belt and Road Initiative, especially on the CPAC, Sino-Pakistan Economic Corridor, where China already is going to put 63 billion of US dollar, is supposedly to provide a faster route from the energy coming from the Middle East and especially from Iran. Then again, China also is playing a balancing act against the influence of the United States in the Middle East, but without trying to fill the perceived security vacuum of power. Please let me underline why every time I see perceived, because again, in my personal opinion, the US is not leaving the Middle East. It's just reshaping its role as offshore security provider. And definitely there will be probably less boot on the ground, but in increase in special force operation or drone operation and so on. Of course, uh, this perception play also for a country in the Middle East, like for example, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. As you can see that recently uh, it started during the Trump administration, but it's going on during the um, Biden administration, uh, US is removing some part of his uh, Patriot missile system from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in a time where the drone uh, suicide attack, the kamikaze drone attack uh, from the Houthis in Yemen are increasing. Then again, how this uh, uh, commercial relationship not supported by military force is going to play in the near future. Maybe in the Middle East, we have some more time to get an answer from the question, while in Afghanistan, it's a question that needs to be answered by the day. Uh, what China is proposing, sometimes has been called the rightfully or wrong, the China model, is a model of uh, non-democratic development. And now, especially after the West economic crisis, in 2008, this model have some kind of appeal uh, in country from Africa to, to the Middle East. And sometimes also, if this model have no appeal, uh, the Chinese fear that in some respect uh, has been used, uh, as I mentioned below, as a bargaining chip. What, what I mean with this? Country that want to increase buying American weapon are just mentioning that if US is not able or not willing to transfer that weapon, they are going to look at China. Uh, as my colleague Dr. Azif Suja mentioned previously, uh, for example, in Turkey, there is a quite good example with the S-400 missile system. Uh, while President Erdogan was looking to buy in, uh, the US Patriot missile system and the Obama administration was adamant that he was not willing to sell it to Turkey, they used China as a scarecrow, saying, look, we are going to buy it from China. And at the end, they ended up to buying probably uh, one of the best uh, solution uh, in aerial defense, that is the Russian S-400 missile, creating up to now a huge problem inside NATO, figured out a NATO partner country having a Russian missile defense system. Having said that, uh, uh, basically, every time you look at the footprint with China, uh, inside the Middle East with one country and with the other, then it plays at international level, not only with the US, but also with other uh, big power, talking about Russia, but also don't forget also the elephant in the room that is India. Having said that, this uh, balanced 
engagement that China uh, is still opting in, in the Middle East uh, is working. And I think that, uh, as mentioned before by my colleague Dr. Che, uh, the State Councilor and Foreign Minister Wai Sixth Country Tour of the Middle East uh, represented very well. And we can just have a, a very brief look at uh, what happened just a, a few, few months ago. Uh, one e-diplomatic tour of the Middle East, the timing was just after the meeting, the first meeting between two top diplomats uh, in the USA, and it was with Blinken and with uh, Wang Yi uh, in Anchorage. Uh, I mentioned before in some of my publications that it was an exercise in futility. What I mean by that? There was basically a talk between two side that were not listening to each other. But just after that, uh, Wang Yi started to uh, tour the Middle East country in trying to corral all the government uh, and uh, breach the, the ongoing cooperation that they have uh, with the United States. And then, uh, as I mentioned before, the Chinese digitalization, it's a very important part uh, that Beijing knows that it can offer. Uh, to the Middle East. Uh, during this tour, Wang Yi visited Bahrain, Oman, UAE, uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and Iran, and Turkey. Uh, having said that, I think we can focus uh, on a couple of these visits, one uh, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, as you remember just uh, the chart before, an important part uh, is still energy. Uh, important uh, not only for oil, but also for gas and for other natural resources. But then uh, there are several overlapping interests between China and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in what uh, is the Saudi vision or Mohammed bin Salman uh, vision 2030. It's a vision based on digitalization. And during the visit of Foreign Affairs Minister Wan Yi, uh, the backyard of the visit was not only Riyadh, but was NEOM. NEOM is a $500 billion cognitive city that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is developing to kickstart its own digitalization project. It's a city that, at least if it's a small part, is going to be realized. We'll see uh, autonomous car, AI, big data, and it's at the forefront of the technological development of the country. And of course, China is willing to jump in as a provider of uh, hardware, software, and also financial resources. Then uh, when Biden administration started to give the cold shoulder to Mohammed bin Salman for the Kazoji affair, then China was already willing to give more space uh, to the Saudi uh, crown prince uh, uh, in terms of government and official recognition. And another part uh, that uh, is considered a win for Beijing is the fact that, of course, uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia uh, is uh, uh, prominent, if not the most prominent in the Muslim world, and it helps uh, uh, with uh, the ongoing crisis that uh, uh, has been uh, shaped in uh, Xinjiang Autonomous Province. Then uh, again, the interests between these two countries are not rooted in shared values. But again, the, the same, I can say in some respect with the United States, but the Chinese model compared to the United States definitely uh, is perceived by authoritarian government as being 
less confrontational. Moving on to another country uh, that uh, Minister Wang Yi visited is Iran. During this trip, there was the signature of the much discussed memorandum of understanding between Iran and China. And then again, if we look at this relationship inside the competition between the United States and China, it's quite important to, to see how, compared to other countries in the Middle East, Iran doesn't have much a choice. China is the economic lifeline for Iran, and even for the digitalization, there is not a choice in having Huawei or not having Huawei. That's it. It's the only possibility that, thanks to the sanction now, Iran has and is going to embrace. At, at, as I mentioned at the beginning, we don't have to forget very strong historical link between the two countries. And the 25 years MOU just mentioned that at uh, the beginning uh, of, uh, of its work. Then uh, Iran, as the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, is a comprehensive strategic partner. And China, up to now, in its own balancing act in the Middle East, is managed to do something that uh, not quite any other country has managed to do. It's being friend, basically, with all of the countries in the Middle East and moving, for example, from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the trip, the next trip from Riyadh was in Tehran. And then it didn't create any problem because uh, if we look uh, one of the core component of the Chinese uh, foreign policy is that whatever happened in one country has not to create problem in what China does in the other country. So uh, the strategic partnership with Iran, even the MOU, talk a lot about security. Most of the discussion, in my personal opinion, has been just hot air, has been blow out of proportion what this MOU is going to do between Iran and China. But then again, there are some important components, especially for what China is looking for the security architecture in the Middle East. And it's something that uh, it sides very well with the proposition uh, by Russia in having uh, a joint uh, security architecture in which also Iran and the Gulf country play an important part mediated by the United Nations. So it's going to be a big question that definitely I'm not to give you the answer now because we are going to see if it's going to be yes or no just in a few days, if it's Iran going to be a member, a full member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And then uh, let's move, I think we still have some time, to Turkey. One uh, part of the uh, last leg uh, of one e visit uh, was to meet his homologue Minister of Foreign Affairs in Ankara, but also meet uh, uh, Ratip Erdogan, Turkish president. And it was quite interesting, if you look at the communique coming out of this meeting, is that economic development and vaccination diplomacy, the so-called Health Silk Road, were at the forefront of the discussion, while most of the time uh, uh, Turkey and Ankara was one of the most uh, vocal country against Chinese policy uh, in Xinjiang province. Having said that, uh, I stressed a lot the word before on uh, perception. Turkey, especially the business elite, has an overblown perception of what China is willing and capable to do in terms of foreign direct investment. If you look uh, at the business press in Turkey, there is a lot of talk uh, 
uh, about what China is going to do with the Belt and Road Initiative. But if you look at the hard data, FDI, more than, I don't remember exactly, 40% or even more come from the European Union, while from China up to now is just a little bit more than 1%. Then uh, in Turkey policy, uh, Russia and China, but especially China, are, uh, let's say, an alternative to the, to the EU. How is going to play, that's, uh, that's quite different. Then, uh, it's not part of one year tour, but I did not want to forget another elephant in the room, that is Israel. Uh, if we look uh, at the historical relationship, uh, uh, informal tires since 79 started uh, to uh, be built up between China and Israel, but we are going to see formal diplomatic relationship very late on, only on the 92. But then, uh, in this time, China has been dealing with uh, with, um, with Israel, especially uh, in what still is looking at now, technology and military technology. Having said that, uh, uh, we can summarize the main rationale in the relationship between Israel and China uh, in four key points. Uh, the first uh, is was the former president of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, was saying, China wants three things from uh, uh, Israel, technology, technology, technology. And up to now, the discourse uh, is still the same. This, of course, created friction between uh, Israel and the United States. There has been an important case, uh, especially in the year 2000, when Israel was trying uh, to uh, transfer to China uh, several weapon systems, including the Falcon aerial early warning system and the Harpy uh, drone uh, loitering munition. It didn't happen because the U.S. intervened, but then I'm sure you know from the news all the discussion about other uh, security products that are very well known, uh, made in Israel, and has been flooding uh, the Middle East and also looking at other markets, and I'm talking about spyware and broader cybersecurity programs. In 2015, uh, Israel uh, was quite fast uh, in siding on the AIB, uh, is the Chinese answer to, to the World Bank and, and IMF. And then from uh, a market point of view, there is also huge expectation from Israeli businessmen that uh, if uh, there is a security policy uh, more favorable to China, then uh, Israeli businessmen will have much possibility to enter and to have open the Chinese market for their product and for their business. Uh, as I mentioned, cybersecurity and big data, it's, uh, it's quite important in this relationship and it's not a, a one-way only relationship where China is trying to sell hardware or software, but is a way in China is going to acquire and invest in startup in, in the Middle East. This is quite important because the Israeli government started to look very closely this kind of investment. And it's just the news from yesterday that even the Emirates, the UAE, are looking to increase their scrutiny on foreign countries that are acquiring a, a local company or setting up joint venture uh, in the country. China, of course, is not mentioned in the, in the communique, but is one of the countries that definitely they are going to, to look at. And then uh, Israel, for the Belt and Road Initiative, especially for the port investment, uh, is a pillar on the Red Sea and the Mediterranean uh, geostrategic uh, evol evolution 
of the Belt and Road Initiative. And again, from historical point of view, we don't have to forget uh, how a uh, city like Shanghai in the Second World War were open city to the Jewish community escaping from Russia and even from, uh, from Europe. And there is a kind of soft power that it also played quite well uh, in the Chinese mindset uh, in how Israel and how about the Jewish business community is very effective and uh, is a good conduit for, for doing business. Having said that, I do believe that uh, uh, we are just on time to end uh, my presentation and uh, to open the space to the question and answer. Uh, as you see, I've tried to give just some key points uh, that you can use to, to address uh, this ongoing competition between uh, uh, US and China in the Middle East. And this basically, this last slide uh, is my personal take on what uh, it's uh, going on at the moment and basically the future trend that all the Middle East is juggling between China technological and financial overreach and the US defense umbrella security requirement. And I stress the fact that it is increasingly becoming a very complex, fluid, and difficult to play balancing act. Having said that, also the full decade after the Arab Spring, most of the MENA region is still mired in crisis. Uh, ongoing COVID pandemic added fuel to this burning fire of crisis and worsened the region already critical social, economic, and political crisis. And in this environment, again, no regional actor uh, has the capability to assert itself as an exclusive hegemonic power. Therefore, China uh, with Russia and inside the United Nations framework uh, is trying uh, to build a multipolar security architecture. Uh, and then, of course, all the role with the return of Iran on the JCPOA uh, is fundamental for the regional stabilization. And of course, several obstacles are on this fact, nonetheless, that uh, this nation, most of the time, their interests are at odds with each other. And I just, with this, give back the, the microphone to my colleague, Clemens Che. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Dr. Alessandro Arduino, for the wonderful lecture. I think we've, we've all learned a lot. And, and we now proceed to the Q&A segment, where I invite the audience to put in your questions in the chat box, just type in there and then we can, we can of course uh, pass it on and read it out to the speaker for today. So we already have a few questions coming in, but um, let me start with one question on tech competition in the Middle East. And, and of course, um, you talked a bit about US-China tech competition in the region, and you, there was also mention about 5G and Huawei, but is it just about 5G and Huawei? Is it just about this? Or are there other elements to this competition? That's the first part of my question. The second part of my question is, you know, you talked about the relationship with Israel and, and you said that, you know, it's all about technology, technology and technology. So it seems that China is, is treating Israel as a, as a technology importer, you know? So how can we compare Israel to the rest of the Middle East in terms of where they stand when we talk about technology? Is there a hierarchy? How do they rate these part, Middle Eastern partners in this aspect? Over to you, Alex. Thank you very much, Clemens. Uh, basically, as I mentioned before, uh, the Digital Silk Road is not just uh, giving Huawei 5G to the Belt and Road Initiative. It's more complex. Uh, 
Uh, why? First and foremost, the actors are not the same. Belt and Road Initiative, we are talking about pure state-owned enterprises moving with Chinese investment bank. Uh, with uh, the Digital Silk Road, uh, we are looking at Chinese tech giant. Of course, uh, uh, it's difficult to say private here because uh, talking about private in China and uh, talking about where the state and, and the private begin is, uh, is quite complicated and we don't have the time to do it uh, right now. But having said that, uh, uh, this technological giant not always uh, uh, follow vertically what is being said uh, in Beijing. And the recent uh, uh, huge fine slapped on Alibaba uh, the block of uh, Didi app in mainland and so on, underline how this perception of Beijing being a monolithic government uh, with uh, con total control on its own technology company is not always the case. In the Middle East, uh, it's already there, the need for digitalization, and the fuel of the next economy, of the digital economy, is no more oil, is data. Who controls the data control the future? And it's not only 5G. Uh, data, and we are talking about 95% of the data that we use on the internet, move to a very uh, old, unromantic uh, medium that are the underwater fiber optical cable. Underwater cable, it's really a long story, and uh, a lot of countries, starting with Russia and China, have a very specific policy where they trace the, the line to, to lay down this underwater cable. Then it moved to, to the space, satellite communication. It's another area with uh, uh, China developed by Doe and is proposing this option to the Middle East. And of course, uh, as I say, the Middle East need to juggle in balancing this act. At the time of Trump administration, it was quite straightforward. It was with us or against us, but there was not uh, an option instead of K. If you are going not with Huawei, Nokia and Cisco are going to do the same for you. Uh, while Israel was more difficult to say no compared to, to other countries who were just biding time and waiting. Uh, when you mention uh, uh, there is a hierarchy uh, with Israel and the other Middle East country, as we are based here in Singapore, I would like to make more a comparison uh, with, uh, like, say, the Middle East country and country like Malaysia and Indonesia, that uh, they both try uh, to be the regional technology market in finance, especially with cryptocurrency, for example, using Chinese technology, uh, while a country uh, in Asia, like South Korea, they are an exporter of high tech to China, but at the same time, they import low technology from China that is fundamental to their development. Same, uh, the comparison will be South Korea with Israel. Israel export, and China has a lot of need from Israel, but at the same time, Israel import uh, low-tech from China that is fundamental to its own development. And this uh, uh, is quite important. And then again, especially now during Biden administration, that it's a little bit more relaxed on the international side on this for Israel, could be a little bit more easy. And when you mentioned that I mentioned that China just want technology, it was not me, it was Bibi that mentioned that. Uh, having said this, uh, uh, how this competition is going to be played uh, in the, the digital realm, data is already there. AI, both United States and China are putting billion in research, but still AI, there is not a definition 
a scientific definition of what we are talking about, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing still have the possibility for a third country to jump into the fray with a solution that is groundbreaking. So I still see that there is ample space of competition. Uh, while in the US, for example, right now, there is uh, the so-called rip and replace. Rip off uh, Chinese Huawei or ZTE technology and replace it with a Western one. How this is going to play in the Middle East uh, is going to be uh, shown in the coming months, not in the coming years. Thank you, Alex. Um, and the questions are flowing in now, so we are all set for a very lively discussion. I'm going to try to group some of them together because they are on the same theme. So, so my next, while we are on data, uh, there's also a, a couple of questions on this and relating back to the Gulf states, you know, the, the oil monarchies in, in the region. So I'm gonna combine two questions here, one from Isha Panwar, uh, who thank you for the excellent lecture, but also ask you to expand on the trade-off that the Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabia faces between US and China and how at the height of uh, 5G expansion, would there be an ideological convergence for Saudi Arabia and China on the control of dissent? So that's, that's the first part. And the second part is from Ankur Gupta. And so what incentives do the oil-rich Gulf states have in courting China? So uh, these are the two parts to your, your questions. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, quite difficult to answer, and especially now that I'm with an expert from the Gulf, that is Clemens. Having said that, uh, as I mentioned before, when the Biden administration was giving the cold shower to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, there he was uh, more the kingdom looking at China. You can see not uh, in terms of uh, ideological connecting point, but then finding someone else instead of the United States. And that could be used as a cheap bargain, as I mentioned before. On the big data, of course, uh, the Chinese model in offering uh, facial recognition, AI uh, control over huge segment of the population plays quite well uh, with the monarchies in the Gulf and with several other countries, uh, even uh, uh, in other countries who are not monarchies, they are looking at China uh, with uh, increasing interest, uh, especially for product from leading world company like Higvision, that they do camera specially tailored for facial recognition. Having said that, uh, if we look at history uh, and uh, the, the deal between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and China is not just related now about technology, controlling technology uh, for a segment of the population and so on. But if you look at the time of the war between Iran and Iraq, when there was a huge amount of SCAD missile flowing not far from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, then at the time uh, the, the Kingdom asked to the United States the possibility to buy Pershing missile. Uh, US denied uh, this possibility, and then uh, slowly and almostly secretly, uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia started to acquire uh, Chinese ballistic missile, the Dongfang, if I recall correct. Uh, when, if we fast forward to the present day, and uh, you have the KSA looking at acquiring Predator and uh, Reaper drone from the United States, then again, the demand was met with a strong no. 
uh, Kingdom Saudi Arabia started to acquire the Winlung and uh, the Tsaihong Chinese uh, combat drone, and even is the first country who have uh, a assembly line for this drone outside the People's Republic of China. Having said that, uh, what are, to the second part of the question, the incentive? Incentive for both uh, uh, players play quite well. From China is not only finding uh, a fertile turf for the expansion of the Belt Road Initiative in terms of port, in terms of connectivity, in terms of market, also find a way to assert uh, the digital Silk Road, as just mentioned, but also another form of soft power diplomacy that is the health diplomacy, with the UAE being uh, uh, one of the first country in producing uh, Chinese uh, vaccination. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, Sinopharm or Sinovac, but uh, uh, one of the two. Having said that, uh, there is also a very important incentive from Beijing and is the support from a very important Muslim country to its own policy in Xinjiang. And if I recall correct, uh, during a recent visit uh, of MBS in China, he mentioned that uh, uh, China is conducting its own uh, anti-terrorism, anti-separatist campaign in, uh, in the region. Thank you, Alex. And I think your last part to your answer probably answers uh, one of the questions we had about Xinjiang from uh, Charukeshi Karikalan and, and how and, and, and the relationship China has with the Middle East on the subject of the Uyghurs. So, so we'll just leave it as that. And we're going to cover uh, regional stability and values that China has for the region. And again, I'm going to group questions here uh, from uh, Victor Teo, uh, Karen Shi, and Mariam Riyami. So their question on regional stability is, you know, is China's uh, interest in regional stability closely tied with its own national interest in the region? And what are the greatest political and diplomatic success, success Beijing has in the region in recent years? Or, and or what are the limits? And on values, that, that is by Mariam, um, you know, what kind of, can you explain what you, what you meant by Chinese non-democratic development model other than the authoritarianism that you mentioned in your lecture. So over to you, Alex. Okay, let me start with the end uh, because I'm, I'm getting old, so I'm easy to forget stuff. Uh, I, I didn't talk uh, a difference between non-democratic and authoritarian. Uh, when I was mentioned, a non-democratic model was uh, uh, mentioned with the model proposed in the region by the United States. Uh, China uh, still have uh, its own model that uh, it's based uh, on economic development. And especially in the Middle East, uh, Chinese uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs stated several times how China uh, is looking at bridging solution in terms of peaceful development. Of course, principle of non-interference is still there, but it means uh, in layman term that China uh, is not going to solve the problem of the Middle East, it's try just to be in crisis management model. When a crisis arises, still try to quell it. And basically, uh, China is okay with the status quo. It's not wanting to change any kind of status quo if it plays well for its own investment. Unfortunately, at the beginning of uh, 2011, with at the beginning of the Arab Spring, uh, Beijing learned uh, with a very harsh lesson how just throwing money 
at the problem is not always uh, the solution. So uh, in all these academic paper and government paper that China uh, produced on the narrative on the Middle East is uh, development is the key component. If a country in the Middle East is able to develop economically, there is not going to be a problem. And this unfortunately has been met by harsh reality, uh, especially uh, in a time when China was a little bit more eager to bet on only one country or let's say slash one country, one ruler. And I'm talking at the Libya case, uh, when uh, the government of uh, Muammar Gaddafi collapsed in 2011. And China at the time put all the bet uh, on Gaddafi regime uh, lost significantly uh, on the oil field, but most important, faced a crisis that was not expected. Is the fact that they had more than 30,000, if I recall correct, is 36,000 workers in Libya, and they have to exfiltrate them very rapidly uh, to avoid major crisis. It happened again. Uh, it was uh, uh, basically uh, in Sudan, if I recall correct. Uh, and then again, China had to exfiltrate this huge amount of worker. And in the Middle East, especially in the area where China is looking at the reconstruction, we are going to witness uh, in the coming months and coming years uh, a huge amount of Chinese worker that are going to move in the area. And then the problem that will stem out, uh, it will be not only a problem related to terrorism or to uncertainty and instability, but also the problem at very local and grassroots level that this kind of influx of people are going to play in the area. And special reference with this also in other areas like Pakistan. And even if we are going to see that, I, I strongly disagree with that, if there is any kind of direct uh, huge investment of China in Afghanistan in the, in the months to, to come. So I hope uh, I have answered uh, the question more or less. Just getting back to the question on Uyghur and, and Xinjiang, uh, I see that uh, beside the statement uh, uh, in the Gulf, uh, it's quite important uh, to look at one relationship, and it's the relationship with Turkey. Uh, my colleague uh, uh, in the latest uh, webinar, uh, Asif and Serkan, uh, have been talking about it, and it's quite important to see how, especially the direct relationship now with Recep Erdogan and Xi Jinping is playing in the interaction between the two countries and how always Turkey has been very vocal against China on China treatment of the Uyghur minority in, uh, in Xinjiang. Now this narrative uh, is not, uh, let's say, uh, disappeared from uh, the debate at elite level, but uh, it's uh, been discussed less on the media. That doesn't uh, mean that uh, the population is in favor of China. And there is always this uh, quite important, uh, let's say, divide, discursive between uh, elite perception on China and local perception on China. Thanks, Alex. So now we will enter the realm of US-China competition in our next, next uh, set of questions. So we've got uh, questions from Iman bin Mohammed Nazari and uh, Elizabeth Ong Kaoshen. Um, so the question really, the first part is about the Build Back Better initiative, the B3W. And do you think this proposed USG7 initiative will allow them to better compete with the BRI in spaces such as the Middle East? And the second part is what are the public sentiments in the Middle East about US-China digital options? So over to you. 
Yes, if we look at the sentiment on the BRI, definitely at a local level is, uh, is uh, let's say, a mixed bag. What I say with this, there is, uh, of course, the expectation of that huge Chinese investment are going to fulfill the promise of fast and quick enrichment by the local uh, businessmen or even by the local population. And sometimes these expectations are not met from the Middle East to North Africa, uh, to Africa uh, itself. Having said that, from the digital part, uh, China is already there. With product, uh, they are competitive in terms of price, uh, competitive in terms of technological offer, and also they uh, provide that kind of set, especially uh, macro app uh, like WhatsApp, uh, sorry, like WeChat, Weixin, and so on, that provide uh, that connectivity that uh, it's quite important. While in the other area of the Belt and Road, especially in Central Asia, uh, it's different. Uh, Chinese provide uh, hardware equipment for connection, but then in, uh, in Central Asia mostly, and especially in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, uh, the narrative on the social media is more rooted on Russia, on Russia application like Vukontakt or Odonaski, okay, than into Chinese application. Uh, strangely, in the Middle East, uh, this Chinese macro app started uh, to have uh, a better inroad, especially to the fact that they invested heavily uh, in a local startup and in cooperation uh, with uh, the local provider. As I mentioned before, it's quite important for the Middle East to develop extremely fast an economic model based on technology and digitalization, and we are talking especially on big data, cloud and fintech because the time is running out it's a time when oil it will be not be enough uh, as a rentier state uh, to pay the bill and then the country needs to transform uh, the economy in a time uh, when the resource is very scarce and the resource is a local talent so this talent uh, mostly are going to be imported and then most of the solution are still being imported not only from china uh, but also from uh, from europe from the usa and in this respect uh, in terms of cloud solution provider uh, the challenge between uh, united states and china i want to say it's almost on a leveling play field is where the security application of the app then it's another ball game if you see recently, there is a huge problem between the UAE and the United States to the fact that former spook from the USA started to work in the Emirates providing hacking service. This is being labeled as hacking mercenary. There is also a chapter of the United Nations, the UN uh, Working Group on Mercenary, that is exclusively looking at this new kind of uh, private military security uh, that is being developed in terms of providing hacking for service. And that's the case in, uh, in the Middle East that is expanding quite fast. And of course, again, the elephant is the room is Israel. The technology, the software based mostly come from, from Israel or from company that become very famous recently, like the Israeli company NSO. Thank you, Alex. And, and for those of you who are unaware, Dr. Arduino will also be de delivering the future lecture on on Central Asia, so be sure to tune in. Let me move now to the next question. It's a more issue-based uh, and issue-oriented question. And that is from Alfin Fabrian Basunduro. And, and his question really is about the Chinese role in the JCPOA, non-nuclear proliferation uh, agreement, and the Iranian nuclear 
negotiation itself. So as so now the question is, could China participate or, or take on a more constructive role in the imp implementation of such an agreement? And how Iran's new president, Ibrahim Raisi, uh, you know, perceives China's role uh, on this issue as well? Okay, I think this question is more for my colleague, Dr. Zip Shuja, who is the expert on Iran, but I will try uh, to give uh, my angle from a more Chinese perspective. Uh, China, uh, as I mentioned before, as a policy in the Middle East, uh, still look at preserving the status quo. So having uh, Iran back to the JCPOA is of utmost importance. And recently, uh, State Councilor Wani underlined how China uh, in his five principles uh, for the Middle East peaceful development, uh, how China promotes uh, non-nuclear proliferation. So China is quite straightforward on that. Uh, nuclear Iran is going to create issue in all uh, Middle East, and then China is still promoting its economic lifeline uh, to Tehran in this respect. Having said that, uh, if we look uh, at the much-talked uh, MOU, the 25 years MOU uh, between Iran and China, uh, there is a talk about scientific development in the nuclear sector, uh, but also there is talk about nuclear sector development with other countries in, in the Middle East, of course, for peaceful use is something that in these days has been stressed a lot, especially yesterday by President Biden when talking about a nuclear submarine in Australia that are nuclear propelled, but not, not nuclear armed. And then we have to, to stress about this nuclear for peaceful use. Then if we look again in the relationship between Iran and China uh, is uh, an unbalanced relationship. China has choice, Iran doesn't have choice. And even uh, uh, if uh, there is a, a stronger hardline present with uh, the new government and uh, the head of uh, the Iranian team that discussed the JCPOA has been just replaced with someone that has more uh, strong position, very similar to the one of the new president, still China is definitely going to push for non-nuclear proliferation, but in terms not of bilateral talk, in terms of multilateral talk, and it plays with the Russian idea of building a security architecture that is multilateral and balance Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, and overall uh, Middle East with uh, also India and with uh, the support of uh, the United Nations. Quite important, uh, if we look uh, uh, still at the MOU, uh, is the fact that in this uh, 25 years agreement, of course, oil for infrastructure investment play uh, the biggest part, but also there is a cooperation in terms of special development zone that China is looking to support Iran in developing industrial bases and port, uh, especially in the area of the island of Jask, of Kesh, and uh, Abadan, and uh, Maku. Uh, having said that, there is also a security component, but the security component is, uh, is quite limited, is more on, on the gray area. And my big question that I'm really looking forward to have an answer in the coming day, if it's Iran is going to get a place as a full member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and how a country, a leading country in that organization like Russia and China are, are going to play that, considering that also uh, Afghanistan is an observer, 
and uh, India and Pakistan just joined the, the SEO. Thank you, Alex, again. And, and uh, the next question uh, is also issue-oriented on the Afghan episode. And of course, next week, we will be welcoming another colleague of mine who is an Afghan ex expert uh, and, and who will talk about US policy uh, in the Middle East. But now we want to hear from Dr. Arduino about China's, China's reactions, motivations, and whether China can work with Middle Eastern states, Russia, and probably even the US in, in guaranteeing regional security in this Afghan episode. So, so over to you. Okay, uh, I was just mentioning that I'm going probably to disappoint you and I was already muted. Uh, why disappoint? There's been a lot of talk uh, recently, uh, again, perception and talk, especially from the West, uh, of China jumping in, in the middle, in the, not only in the Middle East, but also in Afghanistan uh, with the People Liberation Army or uh, uh, as a second choice uh, with the private security companies. Uh, in my personal opinion, uh, definitely is not going to happen. Uh, when we talk and we talk about Tintank, it's always unwise to use the word definitely, because then someone is coming back and tap you on the shoulder and say, oh, you say that. But then again, I think it will be very difficult to foresee a huge amount of Chinese Belt and Road investment in Afghanistan, while even the CPAC, Sino-Pakistan Economic Corridor, uh, is going to be threatened by ripple effect, negative ripple effect stemming out of Afghanistan. A possible attack from Tariq Taliban Pakistan in Pakistan can create problem. Uh, already uh, Baluchi attack uh, against Chinese worker, not against China, but against someone that support Islamabad are, uh, are basically on a monthly issue. We don't have to forget that uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, nine Chinese engineers were killed uh, in the Dasu area power plant. Uh, it was an attack that the Pakistani government tried to play down, while the Chinese government was quite adamant uh, on the terrorist route. Having said that, where it happened, it was just uh, not far from the Afghani border. So I'm going to see, in terms of security, uh, definitely not uh, a military presence in the area probably an increase of uh, support in terms of uh, defensive equipment to country that border Afghanistan, uh, namely uh, Tajikistan and even Turkmenistan. This already started several years ago. And then on country that can get most of the blunt of negative ripple effect, talking about uh, Kyrgyzstan. Why I do believe that Uzbekistan still have the capability to, to do it on its own. And it's something that also Russia uh, it's, uh, it's increasing and uh, it's very basically sharing the same anxiety that uh, Beijing is having talking about the Afghanistan issue. We don't have to forget that also on July 28, if I recall correct, Minister Wang Yi met uh, with Mullah Baradar in, uh, in Tianjin and there was an ample discussion uh, about uh, quelling some of Beijing anxiety, that namely are uh, the use of TIP or ATIM, if you want to call, uh, as uh, of Afghanistan as a training ground and a springboard for attack uh, on the Xinjiang province, something that the Taliban mentioned is not going to happen. But then the huge issue is going to be uh, if the Taliban are going to allow expatriation of uh, Uyghur from Afghanistan to China. And this is something that my colleague, Dr. James Dorsey, uh, know very well and has been uh, writing about uh, in these days.
Thank you, Alex. Uh, so we've covered a, a great deal of themes and, and now uh, we have some questions on, on, let me group them up and it's on green initiatives. And, um, and of course, green, going green is also now a, a theme in Singapore, it's a thing here. So, so the question really, if I were to, you know, piece everything together is, is what really is, is how genuine is China's commitment to, a, to, be, to become carbon neutral by 2060? And what are some of the notable green projects that it has uh, in this aspect? I mean, genuine, uh, and I talk about my personal perception, it's a straightforward yes, capable of maintaining that promise, uh, I can have some doubt onto that. Having said that, how is going to play, uh, for example, in the Middle East, uh, in terms of promoting solar and wind power? Uh, but if you look at the number, China is, uh, is very aggressive in its own uh, green policy inside mainland China. But outside, still, uh, there are a lot of projects in the Belt and Road Initiative that are carbon intensive. And then this carbon footprint, uh, uh, mostly uh, in South Asia and Central Asia, still doesn't play very well with the green initiative. Uh, the talk uh, between Hanjiang and Keris uh, recently uh, didn't work very well, uh, if I recall correct, on what the US were planning to ask China to do it, while China is still adamant on the fact that it's going to meet uh, what uh, promise in terms of, uh, of the Green Initiative. Uh, really long time ago, when I was based in Shanghai, uh, I worked directly uh, with Han Zhen when he was uh, vice mayor of the city uh, and in charge of the commission uh, for the environmental protection. And at the time, uh, uh, was quite uh, different because China didn't have a dedicated ministry for environmental protection. It had SIPA. It was a kind of environmental protection agency that was inside the Ministry of Industry. And uh, at the time, the narrative was very straightforward. China is going to develop its industrial base and just after going to look at what's going to happen on the green part. It's something that, of course, uh, is not possible to do it now, since China also is looking at corporate social responsibility and at increasing a green footprint in mainland China. How this is going to play outside China, if it's only greenwashing or if it's just uh, a true intent to met that uh, objective, I do sincerely believe that uh, it's, it's a very difficult task that Beijing have to meet. Thank you, Alex, once again. Uh, I'd like to invite our audience to keep the questions coming. And while we're on that, the next question really is about the Horn of Africa and the Red Sea. Uh, and of course, uh, Dr. Arduino's expertise also, also revolves around private security companies and mercenaries. So you know, on this issue, you, know, you talked a bit about Djibouti in your lecture, you know, and, and, and the Horn of Africa remains a critical theater that affects US strategic interests as well. So, as far as you know, China is trying to portray itself as a as a neutral state with economic interests in this part of the world. You know, can we really challenge the notion? Uh, so, so that is over to you, Alex. Yes, looking at that, uh, I mean, if someone in the audience is talking, why we are talking about Africa when we are talking about Middle East, Horn of Africa been geographically not included in the MENA region, have a very strong connection with uh, the Middle East, especially with Yemen and with Oman. 
Uh, having said that, uh, China uh, have a very peculiar security footprint uh, in the area. The first uh, military base uh, in Djibouti. Uh, I was there in the 2019, at the beginning of 2019, and as I mentioned before, uh, it's quite a small country and is fooled by foreign military uh, presence from all over the world, and uh, is near to a choke point, uh, uh, near uh, the Strait of Bab al-Mandeb, uh, that uh, not only is one of the most fundamental choke points uh, in where you can block sea lane of communication with the Strait of Ormuz and not far from here uh, in the Malacca Strait, but also uh, is near to what was termed uh, until a few years ago a failed state, that is Somalia. Somalia now, Somaliland uh, and uh, the Somalian uh, as a country uh, is looking uh, better getting on its feet uh, uh, piratical activity uh, is still uh, a problem, but it's a minor compared to what it was 10 years ago. But at the same time, if we look from East Africa to West Africa, there is an increase in piratical activity. Having said that, why it's interesting if we look at China? Because it's where China is experimenting a different security footprint. And by that, uh, we are not talking about People Liberation Army. We are talking about private security company. China has a thousand more than seven, 8,000 private security company all over mainland China, but only a handful of these company, like 15, 20, are able to operate in the international arena. And the area from Ethiopia, Kenya, and now increasingly uh, is a quite difficult area to operate, but Somalia is a place where Chinese private security company are operating. I'm talking about private security, not about private military, nor about mercenary, just making a short distinction that private security provide passive security guard, and according to the Chinese law, they are not armed. So basically they contract uh, local militia or armed uh, third national country to work for them. Uh, and uh, in area like Somalia, it's going to be very interesting to look uh, how the great game in the area is going to play with the US still be present in the area with AFRICOM, uh, with uh, the Emirates, Qatar, KSA, increasing investment in the region, but also Turkey. Uh, airport in Mogadishu, uh, the training is done by by Turkey uh, military. And if you look at Afghanistan, again, there was the talk, uh, uh, I don't know how it's going now in these days, while Qatar experts are already in, in Kabul airport, uh, in uh, Amid Karzai airport, uh, Turkey was supposed to send its own troop in uh, protecting the airport. So you can see in an area that is a quite uh, difficult and complex environment like Somalia, you see that all the Middle East players from the Gulf to China, to Turkey are present. Thank you once again, Alex. And, and our next set of question is on Palestine. And of course, uh, we know that uh, the China was the president for the UN Security Council in May this year, where they had an open debate on the Palestine-Israel conflict. So, and, and in addition to that, I'd like to, to, to top things up with with the fact that China has, of course, put forward a lot of four-point, five-point proposal for, for uh, regional stability. So, so what is your take on China's move to mediate this, uh, this protracted conflict between Palestine and Israel? And, and what are the motivations behind this? 
as uh, that's a very good question uh, and it plays very well if we look uh, at the overall chinese policy that uh, is uh, conflict management and not conflict resolution in this respect uh, there has been some point uh, that are still adamant to chinese foreign policy in terms of support of uh, the, the palestinian cause as i mentioned just uh, at the beginning of my presentation uh, at the early time of the involvement after the 1955 uh, after the bandung conference of china in the middle east uh, it was quite easy to find uh, palestinian reading mao zedong book uh, was not the red book uh, but was the book uh, the treaty on uh, guerrilla warfare then at the time chinese support was more straightforward especially to fatah and uh, to the plo uh, what China is doing now in support to the Palestinian cause, uh, it's a support that is not going to jeopardize his relationship with Israel. So having said that, uh, when uh, there was uh, the escalation of violence in Gaza and uh, Israeli uh, IDF uh, bombarded the area following uh, the rocket attack from, uh, from the area, uh, China was adamant in criticizing what happened in favor of the Palestinian cause, but at the same time, before, besides moving to this open critique, there was no more much action on the, uh, on the field. And so basically, as I mentioned uh, before, China is going always to active balance uh, what uh, a policy uh, in one area, in one region, is not going to create problem in, in another region. And this balancing act, especially to the case of uh, the, the Palestinian and the ongoing since the time of Oslo, uh, is still uh, uh, on, the, on the table with, uh, with Beijing. Thank you, Alex. And, and of course, to run up our, our discussion for today, uh, what has been really a fantastic Q&A segment, uh, we like to take a step back and look at the broader purview of, of this whole um, uh, China's role in the Middle East. And, and so far, we've seen that it's an economic giant with, with, no, with little to no security footprint. So you know, my question then to wrap up today's discussion is, will this evolve? Will China's role evolve? And, and it will include some more hard power in that sense uh, and how it will fill the power vacuum in, in different segments of, of the Middle East with you know, talks about US uh, retrenchment in the region. So over to you. Okay, I think uh, the nine minutes that we still have are not enough to discuss about it because it's a very important ongoing discussion that is going on by the day, not only in the Middle East, but especially in Washington think tank. Having said that, uh, I still believe that China is going to still play the economic development card. Uh, the part uh, on the digital Silk Road is going to be where at tactical and strategic level uh, the real battle is already being played in the control of data and definitely uh, is not like the case of uh, Kabul with uh, the troops leaving uh, the area after 20 years of war, US uh, is still going to be present in the Middle East just uh, on uh, his old role of security offshore balancer. In this respect, uh, the presence uh, of uh, armed uh, Chinese in terms of contractors uh, can probably be an issue in the coming years, uh, but definitely not uh, in the months or even in, uh, in the year to come. Having said that, uh, providing security 
for the Chinese worker and an increasing footprint of Chinese worker in the, in the area can be problematic. But in other areas, for example, like Iraq, uh, it's not been an issue. Because if you look at the protection of the Chinese oil field in Iraq, has been done by a kind of hybrid private security company that are a mix of Kurd, uh, former fighter, local fighter, a former fighter becoming that has become contractors, and even contractors coming from Western companies. And it played very well in Iraq, and probably it can be duplicated in other areas of, uh, of the Middle East. Then uh, another thing is China going to ramp up uh, its own footprint in reconstruction area, especially I'm talking in, uh, in Syria or in other area where still the security for the worker or the infrastructure uh, it's going to be met at gunpoint. In this respect, uh, I, I don't have a straightforward answer, but still again, I don't believe uh, that we are going to witness a force on force uh, from one side China and from the other side in the United States in a region like the Middle East uh, for, for the future to come. Thank you, Dr. Alexandro Arduino today for today's lecture and also for answering all the questions from the floor. Uh, we had a, a huge string, a long string of questions, in fact, and, and I think we have covered a great deal, uh, ranging from China's role in tech all the way to its broader role uh, in the US-China rivalry. So next week, next Thursday, as part of lecture four, we will be hosting Dr. Jonah Blank, another colleague of mine, who will talk about US allies uh, in the Middle East um, and boots on the ground or off the platforms, and that is the title of next Thursday's lecture. And also a special shout out to next Wednesday morning. Next Wednesday morning, we'll have a conversation with uh, former ambassador to President Jimmy Carter, who conceived the Carter Doctrine that says that you know, US will intervene with military force if necessary in the Persian Gulf in order to protect its national interests. So it will be an interesting conversation with him. So there's two upcoming events. I urge all of you to sign up. And once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Alessandro Arduino again and to our MEI events team for a wonderful session today. Thank you very much, Clemens. Thanks a lot to our events team and especially thanks to the audience for being with us today for the great question. Have a good day. Have a good day, everyone.